Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 12, Rise and Warn. Hello and welcome back to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. Last episode, we looked at a few of Muhammad's earliest followers and the immediate impact of Abu Bakr's conversion. We also ended up taking a much closer look at who exactly Muhammad's earliest followers were and we analysed their social position in Mecca. We left off with Muhammad spreading his new sect in Mecca in secret. The secret preaching carried on as we have mentioned for about three years from 610 to 613 AD. Muhammad's method of spreading his religion in this first three-year period was mainly through private invitations to people he thought would be open to accepting his message of one God. Muhammad's efforts in this initial three-year period were further augmented by a few of his devout followers, most notably Abu Bakr, who spread Islam in a much similar fashion. He did it in secret, carefully picking out people he trusted and people he believed would be receptive and more likely to embrace the monotheistic faith that Muhammad was preaching. Towards the end of these three years, due to mainly the expansion in the number of people who had accepted Muhammad's message, word had got around and spread throughout Mecca. There were murmurs here and there that Muhammad was preaching a new faith. These whispers eventually rendered Muhammad's private sect into becoming somewhat of an open secret in the valley of Mecca. It was on this third year that Muhammad received a revelation prompting him to go public with his message and specifically to warn those who were nearest of kin. And so Muhammad set out to do exactly just that. In a truly Arab fashion, he prepared some food and invited some men from his clan, the Beni Hashim, and with them some men from the clan of Beni Muttalib who were closely allied with the Beni Hashim clan. Again, if you don't remember uh, which clan is which, if you're losing track of the clans in Mecca, I know it can be confusing. If you just head over to the blog's gallery page and also on some of the episode guides for previous episodes, 
there are plenty of diagrams and figures to help you visualize and see exactly who the clans in Mecca are. Just a quick recap, Hashim was Muhammad's great-grandfather. So the clan of Beni Hashim, the sons of Hashim, are all the descendants of Hashim. Muttalib was Hashim's brother. So the Beni Muttalib are all of those people who are descendants of Muttalib. Those of you with good memories will recall from episode 6, after Hashim's somewhat premature death, Muttalib was the man who retrieved one of Hashim's sons, Abdul Muttalib, from the custody of his mother in Yathrib. And that was where Abdul Muttalib got his nickname from. Back to Muhammad's feast, all in all, around 45 men responded to Muhammad's invitation and turned up to his banquet. Muhammad served them food and waited patiently till they finished eating in order to address them. However, his uncle, who was known as Abu Lahab, the fiery one, a nickname reflecting not only his character but also his appearance, he was said to have had quite a pale complexion. And the Arabs would call people with such complexions red because in the heat and the scorching sun of Arabia, if you did not tan, then your complexion could only redden. This uncle, Abu Lahab, sabotages nephew with numerous interjections and Muhammad could not find an appropriate opportunity to speak to his kinsmen and invite them to accept his message. As we have already mentioned, the new sect had by now become an open secret in Mecca, so presumably Abu Lahab had correctly suspected the reason for Muhammad's seemingly spontaneous invitation. Muhammad, however, was simply undeterred by the failure of his first attempt. He marked out another day and tried again. On his second attempt, he did exactly the same as he had done the first time round. He prepared some food and invited the same people, his clansmen, to come again for another feast. This time, however, when the men arrived, he did not wait for them to finish eating or for an opportune moment to speak. He simply made sure that this time his words would be heard. He addressed them in a short speech that started off by praising God and testifying that there was only one God. He told them that he was God's messenger to them and then finally ended with a stark warning that they all will be ultimately judged for their actions in this life, a final judgment that will lead them to either eternal paradise or eternal hell. Muhammad's words of God's mercy and warnings of God's punishment echoed around the room emptily. His words seemed to have no effect and the feast was a complete flop because when Muhammad asked the assembly who amongst them would support his cause and help him in his mission to call people to the one God, there was silence. The silence was eventually broken by the 13-year-old Ali, who felt impelled to speak and help out Muhammad in this moment of embarrassment. He raised his hand and pledged to help Muhammad, but the rest of the men who had gathered just laughed and left. While none of the men he had invited had accepted his message that night, it was not a complete and utter failure because as a result of the feast, Muhammad ended up gaining two things. The first is that he gained a few extra followers. They were some women from the clan of Beni Hashim, most of whom were related to people who had already accepted Islam. 
for example, one of Muhammad's paternal aunts, a woman known as Safiya Bintu Abdul Muttalib, Safiya, daughter of Abdul Muttalib. She was actually the mother of Az-Zubayr, who we mentioned in the last episode. He was from the clan of Bani Asad, and he was one of those first five people that Abu Bakr brought to Islam. By the way, just to avoid any confusion before we move on, the reason why Zubair and his mother do not share the same clan is because in Arab society, lineage derived from the father. And in the case of a wife, although she becomes part of her husband's family when they, uh, when they become married, she still retains by name her maiden clan. The same way some people uh, today, some women today, keep their surnames even after they are married. The second thing that Muhammad gained from that night, the second thing that he gained from setting up that feast, and arguably the more important thing, was a guarantee of protection from his clan. By actually going public, Muhammad put himself in a very dangerous position. He was at a grave risk of being abandoned by his tribe. There was a very present possibility that by proclaiming his new religion and by going public with it, his clan could refuse to protect him and he would become no longer a member of the Bani Hashim, meaning that he could be attacked by anyone without any fear of reprisal or retribution from the clan of Bani Hashim. Abu Talib, who was now the head of the Hashim clan, ultimately rejected Muhammad's message citing his love for his father as the reason why he would never leave his father's religion, he politely rejected Muhammad's message, but he swore to him that regardless of whatever religion Muhammad followed, no matter what, he would continue to protect Muhammad and bar him from any harm that might befall him. Muhammad, slightly dismayed by the failure of his own clan, his own family, his own people, to heed his words and accept his message, but still encouraged by all of Abu Talib's guarantees and his ultimate retention of his clan's protection, Muhammad decided to turn his gaze towards the rest of Mecca and extend the invitation of Islam to all of its inhabitants. There is a mountain in Mecca called Mount Safa, Jebel Safa. It is about... 100 meters from the Kaaba, so relatively close, and today it is part of the massive Kaaba complex. It is called a mountain, but in reality it is way too small for that honor. It is actually more of a hill. Anyway, Muhammad went to Safa and climbed up the hill where he had a vantage point. He started to call out for people's attention, shouting out all the clans of Quraysh one after the other, name by name, and soon enough a crowd of people had gathered to see what it was he had to say. Muhammad addressed the crowd, saying to them, If I told you that from my position atop this mountain, that right now an armed force is heading towards Mecca to attack it, would you believe me? The crowd unanimously agreed and replied that, Yes, they would believe him. He still carried his reputation of a Sadiq al-Amin, the truthful, the trustworthy. To this, Muhammad replied, Well, I am not here to warn you of riders heading towards you to attack you. I am here to warn you of death heading towards you, and with it, the inevitable day of judgment, 
where you will all assemble in the presence of God and be subject. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...to his will and punishment. I see this fact of the afterlife as clearly as you see this life. O people of Quraysh, save yourselves from the hellfire. These resounding words that echoed through the Valley of Mecca formed the first major public call for all to accept Muhammad's message of one God. Its initial impact was not much different from the feast he had organized with his clan, the Beni Hashim. Muhammad was simply dismissed by most people. The attitudes of the Meccans would be best reflected by Abu Lahab's reaction to Muhammad's speech from a top suffer. Damn you! Is this why you gathered us? Abu Lahab exclaimed furiously, his face even more red than usual, a perfect picture of enraged annoyance, turning away with the rest of the crowd in a hurried rush back to whatever it was he was doing before his day was interrupted by Muhammad's shouts on Safa. Initially, the people of Mecca had absolutely no reason to be intolerant towards Muhammad's monotheistic proclamation. First of all, they were polytheists. They believed in many gods, many goddesses, a whole assortment of various minor deities. And it's quite simple, really. If you believe in many gods, there is no reason at all to be hostile to a god that was not your own. For you, it's just another god. And secondly, Muhammad was not the first person to privately leave behind the Arabs' pagan beliefs. We mentioned previously that Khadija had a relative who actually lived in Mecca known as Waraka, and he was not a pagan. In these early days of Islam, the early followers of the Prophet would head out together to the glens and valleys just outside of Mecca, where they could pray together without being seen and worship in peace and isolation. One day, a group of pagans ran into a group of Muslims worshipping out in an empty valley neighbouring Mecca. They then proceeded to ridicule them and rudely interrupt their prayers, impeding the group of Muslims' ability to worship in peace and isolation, which was the sole reason why they made the effort to go out of Mecca to the mountain valleys in the first place. It was not long at all before the hot-headed nature of the Arab came into play and the heckles of the pagans became just too much to bear. In a society where not responding to insults was a big no-no, a massive plunge in prestige and a great slight to one's honour, the two parties came to blows. During which Sa'ad, who he also mentioned in the last episode, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, who was from the clan of Bani Zuhra, a noble clan of the Quraysh, and he was one of the first five that Abu Bakr brought to Islam. Sa'ad, during his fight with the pagan group, managed to strike one of the people he was fighting with with a camel bone. It was actually a camel's jawbone. 
Sad strike was the first blood spilt in Islam. It was the first bloodshed in the name of Islam. Although his strike with the camel, uh, with the camel bone, spilt blood and wounded his opponent in the process, it was not a fatal hit. Quickly after this incident, Muhammad received revelation commanding him and his followers to refrain from any violence in any physical confrontation, and specifically to ignore and be patient with what the disbelievers had to say. Some time passed after this incident, and soon the Quraysh found their reason to not tolerate the new religion. They had been tolerant with the likes of Waraka in the past, but that was because he had essentially kept himself to himself. Muhammad, on the other hand, after his public proclamation, had begun to preach his new religion much more actively. And in the process, by calling people to worship one God, just one God, he was indirectly and sometimes directly insulting all that the people of Quraysh and the pagans of Mecca had to stand for and all that they lived for, their gods, their idols, their age-old traditions and practices, the memories and legacies of their venerated fathers and forefathers before them. The key cornerstone of Muhammad's teachings was essentially that there was only one God, but for there to be only one true God, all the rest must be impotent frauds, and those who worship them are not just in error, but damned to an eternal life in hell. Once it became quite clear that Muhammad showed no sign at all of slowing down or even turning down his activities, the leading men of the Quraysh gathered and sent together a delegation to Abu Talib, leader of the clan of Bani Hashim. Abu Talib also happened to be Muhammad's only full paternal uncle. Muhammad did in fact have numerous paternal uncles, but Abu Talib was the only one that was a full uncle. The rest were all half-uncles, meaning that they all shared the same father, but not all of them shared the same mother. The delegation complained to Abu Talib that his nephew was insulting their gods, impeding and defiling their religion. He had mocked their dreams and made them look like ignorant fools in front of the people that he was preaching to. And on top of all of these crimes, his nephew had dared to insult their fathers. He had declared them misguided and damned to an eternal life in hellfire. The delegation ended up giving Abu Talib a bit of an ultimatum. He had the choice of either stopping Muhammad himself or leaving it to them to deal with Muhammad and his newfound hobby. They would end his activities if Abu Talib didn't want to. The delegation had suspected that Abu Talib was actually not in favour of what Muhammad was doing, but could not do anything about it due to the extreme dishonour associated with spilling the blood of your own clansmen in the Arabian tribal society, never mind spilling the blood of your own nephew. So the delegation, assuming that Abu Talib was not in favour and that his hands were simply tied, offered Abu Talib a way out, if you like, where Muhammad could be dealt with and stopped, but Abu Talib could never be accused of harming his nephew, and thus his reputation would remain intact and unsullied. Unfortunately for them, the delegation had grossly misjudged the situation and Abu Talib's stance in the matter. 
In response to their ultimatum, Abu Talib, in true diplomatic manner, simply gave the delegation a non-answer, a conciliatory answer. And the delegation returned satisfied that they were progressing towards achieving something with Abu Talib. Muhammad, on the other hand, continued in his activities, preaching the message of one God to the people of Mecca. On that note, thank you for listening. That is all for today's episode. Next episode, we'll continue following Muhammad's activities and seeing where that leads him. And we'll begin to look at how the Quraysh respond and their reaction to the new sect rising beneath their noses. I'd just like to inform you also that the History of Islam podcast is now a member of the Agora Podcast Network. For those of you that don't know what the Agora Podcast Network is, well, listen to this. The Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a marketplace of the mind where intelligent, independent podcasts meet curious and discerning listeners. The Agora Podcast Network is home to many great shows. To find out more about them, head over to agorapodcastnetwork.com. One of them is the History of England podcast, which also happens to be this month's podcast of the month. It's hosted by David Crowther, who does a fantastic job, by the way. The History of England podcast goes through the History of England podcast In a weekly podcast, it follows English history all the way from the Anglo-Saxon invasion. So we're looking at the beginning of the 6th century AD. If you want to find out more about this great podcast, just head over to David's site, which is historyofengland.typepad.com. Right now, he's still going strong on his 172nd episode. So you know what that means for you, a massive back catalogue of episodes that you can binge on. Thank you for listening. I'll see you as always next week. Don't forget to head over to the blog for the additional resources, the episode guide, the gallery, the glossary, etc, etc. It's all there. Historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com or go over to the new Facebook page. Give it a like. Interact. Facebook.com forward slash the History of Islam podcast. Finally, I want to give a quick general thank you to all the people that are sending me messages. Thank you for the kind words. And thanks to all the people that have donated so far. Really appreciate it. It helps the podcast keep going. And also, thank you to those of you who are leaving some really great reviews. Every time I read one of them, it just leaves me with a massive childish grin on my face. So, thank you. I'll pick out some reviews to read in the next episode. That's all from me for now. Elias Bohadad, signing off. Goodbye. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.